This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on the Table podcast today is keeping the faith in college. And my guest on the show today, coming to us via Zoom, is Michael Kruger. Michael is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary on the Charlotte campus in North Carolina. And he's also Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Good to be back on it. Yeah, it is good to have you back on. It's not your first time on the table with us. You're uh, on with Andreas Kostenberger back in the day, in the early days of our show, uh, talking about biblical inerrancy with uh, Daryl Bach. And uh, for those who are listening right now, if you want to check that out, it's episode 140 and 141 on your favorite podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. But today we're talking about helping Christians, uh, specifically Christian students who are in college, maintain their faith and navigate some of these intellectual challenges that a lot of uh, Christian students face in college, especially those who are on secular college campuses. And Mike, you wrote a book called Surviving Religion 101, and it's a wonderful resource for both parents and students. And tell us how this book came about. Yeah, this is a different book for me uh, than the others I've written. It's my first lay-level book. Uh, And it's also one of the few books that has such a personal story behind it. It's partly autobiographical. Uh, I tell a little bit of my own story and then uh, talk mainly about how to help my daughter, Emma, through her college experience by writing uh, a series of letters to her. Um, So, yeah, it started years ago when I was an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill and found myself in a religion class that was very challenging to me. And I didn't have answers to the very hard questions being thrown my way. And the professor was was dynamic and uh, eloquent and persuasive and didn't believe Christianity at all. Um, and it really rattled my, my faith in profound ways. And, and some may know that professor's name was Bart Ehrman, who now is quite well known as a very serious scholar and critic of Christianity. And there I was years ago, and he was a new professor at the time, but there I was in his class without answers to the questions. And mm-hmm. that sent me on a new trajectory Uh, myself in the biblical scholarship as I've struggled through that, but then also have always wanted to ever since help other college students in the same situation. So when my daughter got to be college age, I thought to myself, well, now's the time. Hmm. So I wrote it and uh, thankfully I'm seeing uh, it uh, helping my daughter, Emma, and hopefully many others. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, as a dad who now has a, a high school senior who's uh, looking at going into college and, you know, looking at which college he wants to go to, uh, it's, it's, it was a, a timely and, and good, uh, good read for me, so I appreciate that. Now, yeah, Bart Ehrman and uh, his book with uh, Bruce Metzger actually is still my go-to for, uh, you know, the transmission of the New Testament, um, his book on the New Testament text. And he is quite famous now as... Um, uh, a New Testament professor that that a lot of uh, conservative Christians like to engage with because he's so critical of the Christian faith. But unlike you, you dove into these 
doubts and questions and became a New Testament professor yourself. How did other Christian students who are hearing this for the first time kind of navigate those challenges? Well, yeah, this is one of the fascinating things about it all. There I sat in a class wondering, what do I do with all this? And I also began to watch what my fellow Christian students were doing. And their, their reactions were all over the map, um, probably not that different than what you still see today. I mean, some, some Christians just pretend it wasn't happening. Like, you know, I'm just going to ignore all this, keep believing, and just pretend it's not, not real. And, of course, sort of this cutoff idea. Then other Christians were the opposite, which is, oh, looks like everything I believe is false, and now I'll just embrace some other religion or no religion at all, and off they went. And then there were yet others who were trying to find some way to make a hybrid out of what they heard in class and their historic Christian beliefs. And so I watched all this unfold. My, my approach was a little different. I, I simply wanted to know whether anyone had ever a- answered these questions before in the history of Christian scholarship. So I sort of went on a little bit of a, a research bent myself trying to figure out whether Christian scholars had dealt with these questions. And I was pleased to discover not only that they had, but that they had for generations, um, even back to the early church, and that the answers were quite robust. And there was a whole other side of the story. So that's what piqued my interest. And then I decided from there, hey, I think I'll just keep going down this path. I ended up uh, down a whole new academic career as a result. So, Mike, what would you say to the Christian student who is maybe registered for Ehrman's class or another class at a similar kind of college, and and they're kind of concerned about uh, the doubts that they might have, the uh, challenges they might encounter, but maybe they're also kind of excited about uh, what they're going to find there. How would you counsel someone to walk into a situation like that as a Christian? Yeah, so one of the things I bring up in the book is there's sort of two extremes that I I try to avoid. One extreme is to suggest that, well, hey, I'm impervious to any problems here. No matter what anyone says, you know, my faith can never be shaken, and I'm I'm all good, thank you very much. So there's this sort of naive approach where you'd go into religion class thinking, well, hey, I grew up in a Christian home, I'm going to be just fine. No, you want to be careful, you want to be wise, and you want to have your sort of radar up, so to speak. Uh, but then there's the, the flip side uh, of the argument, which is the other extreme, which is some people say, you know, I can never allow myself to ever hear anything that's contrary to what I believe, lest mm-hmm. it contaminate me. And there's sort of a cutoff from all uh, non-Christian thought out of fear. And I, I think we want to avoid that w- as well. So whether a person takes a class with Ehrman or not is not a decision I can make. But eventually, every one of us is going to have to face those sorts of arguments. We're going to have to deal with the world we live in, which is not always friendly to our faith. So at some point, you're going to have to deal with it. Um, And if you're surrounded by good Christian fellowship and you have people you can work through those issues with, then I think you can use those things as an opportunity to grow, um, to have your faith challenged, to look for answers, and to work your way through those problems. But what we don't want to become as Christians is sort of isolated and cut off, sort of like never engage in these things, because that just hinders our ability to interact with the world around us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we found in our research that one of the common characteristics of Gen Z is that a lot of them have a hesitancy to, to ever express an objective view that somehow uh, suggests other people happen to be wrong about a certain thing, especially when it comes to morality, uh, sexuality, religion, things like this. Uh, how would you counsel a student who's struggling with the exclusive kinds of claims that Christianity makes, like Christianity is the only true worldview, for example? Yeah, so I understand very much how, you know, after all the cultural pressure we feel and sort of the bombardment we get every day, why the average Christian believer is going to be on the hesitant side. You're going to be sort of maybe a little shy, maybe a little worried that whatever you say when you speak up is going to get kind of creamed in the class. I get that. 
Uh, just a couple points of pushback. First of all, even though it looks like a lot of Christian students may be afraid to make dogmatic statements, um, I would argue that they should observe the fact that non-Christians make all kinds of dogmatic moral statements all the time. And this is a bit of the paradox and the irony that needs to be observed. It's interesting because while your non-Christian friend may say morality is relative and that everybody gets to have their own view, they don't actually mean it when they talk about the real world because they're quite upset about a great many things. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, cultural commentators have noticed now that there's more what is called moral outrage in our culture than mm. ever before. So what's ironic is we're about the least Christian culture we've ever been, in, at least in America, in its recorded history, but maybe has the most moral outrage we've ever mm. had. Um, in our world history. So I think what a Christian student can say is, look, I'm making moral claims, yes, but don't don't miss the point, Mr. Non-Christian, you're making moral claims too. Mm -hmm. And so now the question isn't whether you can make absolute moral claims, but who has a basis in their worldview for making credible moral claims? At least as a Christian, I have a reason why I think something's right or wrong or good or bad. I'd simply challenge my non-Christian friend, give me the reasons in your worldview why you think something is right or wrong good or bad, and let's see who makes most sense of the world. So that's where you want the conversation to go. Um, and I think it's going to be tough to do, but it needs to be done with patience and charity and grace without defensiveness and certainly without some, some sort of martyr complex where we feel like everybody's out to get us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I think that's really true, especially today with issues of justice, issues of uh, race, all these things that people are looking at going, there's something wrong with our world. <laughs> it really shouldn't be like this. And But where does that should come from, right? Why should people be loving each other instead of hating each other, helping each other instead of hurting each other? Um, on a naturalistic worldview, there, there really is no should, right? And so um, thinking about what grounds that, yeah, it would, would real, be a really good way to, to begin having that conversation with somebody who, who is of a different faith, a different worldview. Sometimes the idea is more universalism for some people. It's that I don't want to say my Muslim neighbor is wrong. So maybe, like, can't we all just be worshiping the same God or whatever? What would you say to somebody who encounters that kind of universalism and, and feels like they don't, they don't really know um, how to navigate that on college campuses? Yeah, this is common too, and it's certainly not new. The whole idea of pluralism, the idea that all religions are the same, that they all get you to the same place, all eventually worship the same God is a common idea. And it sounds really good on the surface. Like, what? can't we just all get along? Why do we have mm -hmm. to fight about which religion is better? Let's just sort of say we're all as good as each other. Well, that sounds good on the surface. It runs into a couple of significant problems. One significant problem is it just, if you believe in the laws of logic, it can't be true because religions just simply say incompatible things. So they can't all be right. Um, Muslims say Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. Christians say Jesus did, in fact, at the day of his resurrection, bodily rise from the dead. They can't be, both be correct. Someone's right, someone's wrong. So on one level, the whole let's all just say we're all equally true idea sounds plausible on the surface, but just in reality, it just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold up. The second reason that, that, that we need to look at why that doesn't work is because obviously we're following Christ and all that we do as Christians, and he's the one that made the claim for the exclusive uh, nature of the Christian movement. And this is a, a thing that we just tend to forget. We, we tend to think that Christians believe Christianity is the only right religion because we just happen to love our religion so much that we declared it number one hmm. or something like this. Well, no, that's not how it happened. Christians don't just happen to like our religion and just want to say, hey, we're the best, but rather uh, we're simply following the claims of Jesus. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. That's his claim. It's not mm -hmm. our claim, but mm -hmm. we simply follow and submit to that claim. 
And that doesn't make us arrogant. It doesn't make us uh, narrow-minded, and it certainly doesn't make us hateful. We're simply acknowledging what Jesus' own claim was. Now, of course, someone can challenge the claim. They can say, I don't think it's true. Fair enough. But if anybody has a shot of knowing how to get to heaven, I'd put my money on Jesus. Uh, and moreover, even if someone is wrong about a claim, it doesn't make them hateful for making it. Um, and so I think those are some key points to raise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it, what can you do if you believe it's true? That's your view, right? Yeah. That it doesn't I mean, make you a you hateful know, person. Absolutely. I mean, what if, what if you know, I always say to people, what if Jesus was right? I mean, what, what if he's right and he is the only way to heaven? Is it hateful to say that? Um, you know, they, they almost always presume it's not true, and therefore it sounds hateful. But what if it is true? Well, right. now what do you do? Now, you, now, now you're, to, to not say it might be hateful rather than to say it. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, actually, it, it's tough to be to be um, proud in the Christian faith because you have to be humble to be a Christian and say, God, I can't make it to heaven on my own. That's why I need you, and I need to repent of all these wrong things I've done. Um, I think humility really is is essential to being a Christian, and so that's that's another thing we could say as well. You know, I find in a lot of apologetics type conversations, if you're talking about the existence of God. The problem of evil, some of these classical apologetics questions, eventually there comes a point where someone says, okay, sure, well, maybe there is a God of some sort, but why Christianity? And then, of course, now you're into um, differences in the Gospels. Can we trust the Bible? Um, How do we know Jesus really rose from the dead and things like this? How would you help a student who may be starting to maybe deconstruct some of their early beliefs about Christianity and the Bible and and reexamine, you know, is the Bible really true? Yeah, so I think it goes without saying that one of the most common questions that we get as Christians, and certainly that I get in, in my field and as a scholar, is this question, why should we trust the Bible? Why should we believe it's true? That's a big question, and it's so big and so vague and vast that the average sort of 19-year-old college student is like, well, what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. You know, what's, my third, what's my elevator speech? Um, in 30 seconds, how do I say why the Bible is worth, worth following? Well, what I do in my book is I narrow it, I narrow that question down. Rather than asking whether the whole Bible is true, let's just ask the question about the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Do we have any reason to think the Gospels um, are reliable records of the person of Jesus? And if we conclude that they are and they're trustworthy, um, then you've got every reason to think that the rest of the Bible is true. Because not only do you have Jesus himself, who's been vindicated by his own resurrection, but you also have his own teachings about the Old Testament. We have to remember that Jesus himself believed the Bible. If by Bible we mean Old Testament, which would have, what it would have been in his own day. And so, you know, why do I believe the Bible? Ultimately, because I trust Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think he knows the best about, about these books. And why do I trust Jesus? Well, because I think the Gospels give me a reliable historical record of who he is, what he said, and that he rose from the dead. So I think that's a way you can go uh, in the argument, and it's a way I go in, in the book. That's a really nice way of breaking it down. We believe what Jesus believed about the Old Testament, that it is the Word of God, and he quoted it as God's Word. And then the New Testament is the the sayings, the teachings of Jesus and his official spokespeople. So we have, uh, in, in a nutshell right there, um, just a very short, succinct thing that you can use to, to begin a conversation about some of those areas. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. 
Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Well, some people, now you said your, your daughter, Emma, is a medical student, right? She's actually a nursing, she's a nursing, nursing student, okay. so she's in the nursing program at UNC, right. And so for some people who are in that field, they, they butt up against the idea of, maybe I have to choose science or religion. This is a common thing as well that people think, um, that somehow science and religion are exclusive things. Either you believe the Bible or you believe science, but you can't believe both. How would you help someone, and maybe even specifically your own daughter, um, who's in this this field um, begin to navigate this idea of science and the Bible? Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate uh, uh, polarization of these two things. And so, you know, I remind people that actually Christianity has a great history of, of Christians who love science and engage in science. And ar- you arguably even some of the most famous scientists had a, a Christian and certainly at least theistic worldview. So some of the greatest advances in science actually come from believing Christians. Um, and so you have to realize there's there's this great history between science and Christianity that is not at odds with itself, like so many people uh, sort of have in their head that, that, that it must be. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing I, I, I make a distinction of is when you talk about science versus Christianity is you have to make a distinction between theor- theories of science and the practice of science. Um, Christians are 100 percent behind the, 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 the practice, the methodology of science that we think it is in fact, um, a useful thing to explore our world and understand it. We're, we're, we're certainly pro-science in that way. But that's not the same thing as saying that we have to accept every individual theory that comes along. Um, and so sometimes what scientists do is say, here's the theory, either you accept it or you don't. And if you don't, well, then you must not be scientific. And we're like, hold, hold on a second. You can, you can reject an individual theory here and there, but still be pro-science uh, in general. The, the last thing I'll say about the science and Christianity thing, which I think is so critical, is that people tend to think that, that science gives you sure results and religion is totally subjective. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to challenge that. I think that's in- incredibly misleading. On the science giving you sure results point, it's been shown, of course, that science isn't the neutral enterprise that we think it is. Scientists just don't don the white lab coat and just look at the facts. But Thomas Kuhn and others have shown that science does its own work through paradigms, through systems that themselves are not dependent on science. And so there's a sense in which, yes, scientists are biased too. So don't think just for a moment because science says something that it's necessarily bulletproof because science can be uh, just as subject to its own bias and worldview problems as anyone else. So when you look at the complete package then, there's nothing incompatible about science and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some people are more on the scientific side, other people are doing more work in the arts, um, theater majors, uh, people who are, who are working in, in music, and in a lot of the arts that we've been seeing um, in our, in our present day, there seems to be a portrayal of uh, Christians as backward, as intolerant, as bigoted. For example, um, years ago, I remember there's this Taylor Swift video, she had a hit song called You Need to Calm Down. And especially in that music video really captured this popular view that in the the public square, biblical sexual ethics uh, is outdated or intolerant or, or even hateful in the minds of some people. Um, of course, there are some really nice people who uh, see the Bible differently in terms of that that area of our lives. What advice would you give to a Christian who's having to navigate these conversations about sexuality and gender identity on campus today? Yeah, this is notoriously complex. I think we all know that for whatever sets of historical reasons, 
sexuality issues are at the center of a lot of these debates between Christianity and other philosophies and other worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um, used to be years ago that you could have those debates, go into the public square and talk about you know, sexual orientation or this, that, and the other, and just argue about what made the most sense of the world and what was the best way to think about things. And people were willing to have a vigorous exchange and move on. What I would tell college students today, and of course, I don't even need to tell them this because they know it, is that the role sexuality has in our culture now is very different. It used to be that you could just debate the merits of any particular moral behavior, but now you're, you're actually challenging someone's own identity. Mm-hmm. To challenge a certain behavior now is to challenge who, who a person is at their core because they identify themselves with their sexual uh, activity so much. And so that's going to require more carefulness. Uh, it's going to require us to be more patient, more gentle, more thoughtful in the way we articulate our views. It's not going to require us to change our views. We want to be aware that when we talk about a certain behavior being right or wrong, there's a person on the other end of that that may, may we would argue wrongly, but still may identify their own identity with that behavior. We need to make sure we navigate that carefully. The other piece of advice I have, I think, is really critical here, is if you're talking about homosexuality or any kinds of sexuality in the, in the university environment, don't just debate a particular act and whether it's moral or immoral. I think that, that misses the point. And I think it leads to all kinds of, of immediate emotional reactions. Mm. Instead of doing that, step back for a moment. Don't debate whether this act or that act is immoral or immoral, moral or immoral. Rather, ask how we know any act is moral or immoral. In other words, what I think the real nub of the question is, is not whether, say, homosexual marriage is right or wrong, mm-hmm. but how do you know anything is right or wrong? Mm-hmm. Now, once you start doing that with your non-Christian friends, it changes the debate entirely. First of all, it's less emotionally laden because you're not just talking about sex now. You're talking about how they get morals from about anything. Once you force them down that path, now they have to account for their worldview. They have to account for how they know things are, are right or wrong. And I think you're, we're, we're going to be on much firmer ground there because I think a lot of people don't have a reason for why they think things are right or wrong. They just either like something or don't. Mm-hmm. And we want to point out how that's not a foundation for morality uh, when all the dust settles. Hmm. Now, for some Christian students, they are you know, they have to go through some kind of a faith deconstruction stage and they want to uh, take apart what they've believed about the Bible and Christianity and re-examine it. But for some people, they begin to feel like their faith is slipping away at a certain point. How would you counsel somebody who's concerned that they just can't believe anymore? Yeah, so I think this is this is getting into the subject of doubt. Um, the last main chapter I have in the book is on this subject of doubt, and this was a really important chapter I think, to have in the book, because I think, honestly, we don't talk enough about doubt mm-hmm. in the evangelical church. Uh, and I, I try to avoid two extremes in that chapter, and I would say the same to a college student. Um, the, the first thing I want to make sure that they know is that, that, that it's normal to doubt, that it doesn't make you some pariah or second-class Christian. It doesn't mean you should feel ashamed and never come to church again, that doubt is a normal part of any uh, Christian life. And don't just deal with it in isolation, but bring it out and let's have a conversation about it. So mm-hmm. to take away the stigma and shame on doubt, I think is, is a real key part of it. The flip side, though, I also want to say um, that we don't want to just revel in our doubts. There's some today that make it sound like the, the most, most uh, excellent virtue you could pursue in the Christian life is doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like uncertainty is the, is the highest moral uh, sort of thing that we strive for. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think doubt, if left unchecked, could lead to serious problems and may even lead to some people leaving the faith entirely. So we want to we want to work against our doubts, but we don't want to pretend like there's some sort of shameful stigma. Um, and so once you get that on the table, I think that welcomes people to come into a conversation about that. And I hope the church can do a better job 
uh, welcoming these questions and just helping Christians work through their doubts. And I do that in my chapter in the book. I talk about different kinds of doubt. I talk about why people doubt, what causes them to doubt, and then some steps to uh, work through those doubts uh, once you have them. Now, one thing you mentioned is the idea of doubting your doubts. Unpack that for us. Yeah, so uh, I give Tim Keller some credit here for the way he phrases that, and I, I, I say in the book, I, I kind of took that from him. Uh, doubting your doubts is just a way of realizing that if you doubt a Christian belief, okay, mm-hmm. you're probably doubting that Christian belief because you've come to believe some other thing that challenges it. But, but what if you started to doubt that some other thing that challenges it? In other words, what if you subjected that other thing also to the same level of scrutiny and doubt as you did to your Christian beliefs? You might find very quickly that doubting your doubts alleviates that problem. So take, for example, the idea that evolution proves the Bible is untrue. Okay, so I believe the Bible is true, and then I have a secondary thing called evolution that comes along and says, well, the Bible's not, and therefore I start doubting whether the Bible is true. But to doubt your doubts means, but what if you subjected evolution to the same scrutiny you subjected the Bible to? Well, you'd quickly discover that evolution has its own pile of problems. In fact, so many, in fact, I think it has bigger problems than the Bible would ever have. Um, In fact, there's reasons to think evolution is suffering from its own set of problems and is not worthy of chucking your faith over that. And so by doubting your doubts, you realize that you can pick away at those problems uh, one by one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just before I ask you that question, you had mentioned you wish that churches could do a better job at helping college students navigate these things. Uh, Could you give just one suggestion of uh, one way that a church might be able to come alongside a Christian college student in this regard? Yeah, so well, there's there's two layers to this. Is what what do you do with students before they leave for college? That's one question, right? And then mm-hmm. then you've got students who already have gotten there. Um, and certainly, you know, one of the good things we're blessed with on on many American college campuses, at least, is really good Christian fellowships. Um, there's Christian fellowships that are there from parachurch organizations, and then also churches have Christian ministries. Um, and this is going to be a key part of surviving uh, religion 101, so to speak. And mm-hmm. and and here's where I come to what I call my my horror movie rule. Uh, I'm, I'm, I love scary movies. I know not everyone likes scary <laughs> movies, but I have this, this sort of uh, thing I call the horror movie rule. And what the horror movie rule is, and it's always violated in horror movies, is that when you're in a horror movie situation, you don't go anywhere alone and you don't go anywhere in the dark. <laughs> and of course, the joke is in every horror movie, the protagonist just does this for whatever sense, senseless reason. He'll go <laughs> off alone and in the dark. You're like, why are you doing this? And right. Inevitably, bad things happen. But if you follow the horror movie rule and don't do that, then you, what you do is you stay in a group and you stay in the light. How do you survive Religion 101? Well, you need to stay in a group. You need to stay in a light and not make the horror movie mistake and run off alone in the dark. And this is where churches come in. Churches and parachurches can provide that fellowship where students can process their doubts in Christian community rather than processing their doubts in a religion class. Um, they can bring it to the Christian community. They can have a dialogue about it and talk about it openly rather than with stigma uh, and shame. And I think that's the kind of thing that needs to happen in the church today. And I'm not sure it's happening uh, necessarily the way we want it to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are great ideas. Uh, Mike, how can people connect with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, the best best way to connect to me is probably my website. Um, it's called Canon Fodder, uh, which is a pun. It's one N in Canon, referring to the biblical canon. Uh, but the uh, URL is just michaeljkruger.com. And so they can just look up my name, they'll find my site. And there I, I, I have blog articles, I have ac- posted my academic articles, it mentions my books, and I have tons of videos and resources and other types of things on there where people can learn more about the Bible and its origins, but also I cover a lot of different theological topics there. And of course, you can link to 
uh, get links to all my books from there. So yeah, that's probably the best way to, to connect with me. Awesome. Well, Michael's book is Surviving Religion 101. I really enjoyed this book, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. It's a, it's a really a, a unique way to present the material. I enjoyed it. Um, you can connect with me as well. Um, if you're on Twitter, you can at me on Twitter at ApologeticsGuy. I'm also ApologeticsGuy on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we thank you for joining us on the table today. Mike, thanks for joining us too. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to have you back. Please do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and leave us an honest review. really does help the show, helps people discover these conversations and the content that we produce. And uh, we hope that you will join us here again next time on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.